Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see you all. Thanks so much for gathering here this morning. And again, thanks for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. For those that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, yeah, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, for inviting us into those spaces or wherever you're tuning in from. Uh, if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint and we've never had the opportunity uh, to meet, uh, my name's Jamie. Uh, it's my joy to be one of the pastors. It's also my joy to get to open up the scriptures with you all this morning as we are week six into a series that we're doing called uh, Creation and chaos, looking at our origin story, which means we're going back to the very beginning of the scriptures. We've been journeying through uh, the opening chapters of Genesis. So Genesis 1 through 11 is what we're looking at together this fall. Today, we're going to wrap up Genesis uh, chapter 2. And so I want to invite you, if you've got a a Bible, please turn there. You can use one of the Bibles in the pews this morning. Uh, You can also scan the QR code and it'll bring up a menu where it says sermon notes. You click that, the text will be there. There's space for you to follow along, uh, take notes, stuff that's up on the screen will be there. Uh, You can also access that at thisiscp.church. And so I want to read this. This is, we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. Uh, We've looked at the six days of creation, then the seventh day, a day of rest. Then last week was the first part of chapter two, which was looking at the creation specifically of Adam, of the first human being, all right, kind of from a different angle than Genesis 1 gave us. And now we get to the creation of woman, to the creation of Eve, and then what is the first wedding? It's the the first marriage in the scriptures. And so as I read God's word, again, this is Genesis 2, 18 to 25. If you're able, please stand as I read God's word this morning. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So friends, as, as we get into this this morning, a couple of things I want to say before diving into the text. Um, at one level, as you just heard, and as I made mention of just in a bit of an introduction, um, this is the creation of the woman. This is the God's creation. Like marriage is not something we came up with. Like marriage is part of God's design. It's something that, that God brought into this, this world that he had created. Um, but I realize in talking about this, anytime a crowd is gathered, right? People are in lots of different places. Um, and I believe that there's stuff in here that speaks to you, that the word of God is living and active. It never returns void. And so it's not dependent on where we are in relationship. So you might be here this morning and you're married and you're happily married. It speaks to you. If you're here this morning and you're married and marriage is a struggle, uh, it speaks to you. Maybe you're somebody here this morning, you desire to be married, but you're single. This speaks to you. Maybe you're somebody that is divorced. Well, this text 
speaks to you as well. Maybe you're somebody that has lost a spouse. You've been widowed. This speaks to you. And yet I realize in that, that there's some specific things this is going to talk about with marriage, all right? But I also believe as much as this text is about marriage, it also speaks to our need for community for one another. And so I, I realize there might be some things disproportionately talking about marriage, but I hope you'll see that ultimately this text, like all of the Bible is ultimately telling a story about Jesus and who he is and the relationship that we're invited into. And this text, like all the others, will bring us to that point. And so then and it's a message that we all need. And yet I recognize the, the, the pain and the complexity that comes when we talk about relationships, we talk about marriage in particular and the, the highs, but also some of the lows and the pain and all, all of that. And so I want you to know for one, not only do like I see you, right? But I mean, this church sees you and cares for you and loves you. But most importantly, like this morning, right now, as you're here gathered, whether you're in person or online, the God of the universe, he sees you, he knows you, he wants to meet you and wherever you are, that he loves you, that he's moving toward you. So it's my hope that we would rest in that as we dive into this text this morning. And as this text begins, as we look back at verse 18, all right, um, there is a problem that is stated in verses 18, particularly in verse 18, but 18 through 20 is what we'll look at, all right? It says this, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. And then it continues and says, I will make him a helper fit for him. And if you're like, I've got questions about that. What is helper fit for him? We're gonna get there in just a moment, all right? So just breathe and know that we are gonna cover that. But for right now, let's just talk about what the Lord declares is a problem. Because one of the ways we can think about this up to this point, all right? Maybe picture it's the end of a, a long day, all right? And you are just kind of settling in and you're listening to some of your favorite music and maybe you're old school, right? You're just like, I've got the record player. Like that's how much of a hipster you are, right? And so you've got that going, all right? Um, and you've got whatever drink of choice you have and you're listening. Like creation up to this point has kind of been like that. It's like this, this song that's playing and we're just kind of soaking it all in. And then it's as if there's like this scratch in the record. It's like, Argh! and it's just like, whoa, like, that was jarring. Like it's all been playing so beautifully. And then the Lord himself says, something's not right. Something's not good. He says, it's not good that the man should be alone. Isn't this fascinating? That Adam at this point, just think about all that he has. Perfect relationship with God, with the creator, that he can walk with the creator, God, and that the cool of the day, right? which we got a little bit of that here recently, right? Slightly cooler. So we thank God for that. He's walking with him. He's got a perfect relationship with God. He's got a perfect relationship, right? With all of creation. It's like, we're gonna see in just a moment, we read just a moment ago, like all of the animals, right? Like he's literally subduing that. None of the animals are attacking him. He just gets to name it, right? You're a lion, you're a tiger, you're my friend, right? Like that's, that's his world. He has ample food, right? He doesn't lack for anything. God has given him like this responsibility, this work. He's given him a, a like delegated power. I mean, Adam seemingly has it all, right? And yet what this is teaching us is it's possible that your life and my life could be flourishing so many different areas. And yet if we miss this, right? If we miss this calling here of being connected to another, 
we actually miss it. Now, if you think for a moment that that means like, oh, this is clearly stating that the way to have the flourishing life is you have to be married, then you haven't read all of the Bible, all right? Because Jesus himself was not married. The apostle Paul, not married, speaks of singleness, all right? At times saying like, hey, if you're married, great. If you're single, great. There's advantages, disadvantages to both he would speak of. So it clearly can't be that the way to the flourishing life is to be married, but it does speak about marriage here as well as we'll see. But big picture, here's what I want you to see. This movement, this song that's been playing, it sort of comes to this jarring moment. And it's like, oh, something's not right. The author, John Ortberg has said this, sometimes in church circles, when people feel lonely, we will tell them not to expect too much from human relationships, that there is inside every human being a God-shaped void that no other person can fill. That is true. Now, pay attention to this, this is so good. But apparently, according to the writer of Genesis, God creates inside this man a kind of, quote, human-shaped void that God himself will not fill. Have you considered that before? That God is like, yes, you're created to be in relationship with me, but you're also created to be in other relationships. And at some level to just say like, oh, you know, you'll be perfectly satisfied if you have this relationship with God. Well, Adam had that. And apparently God said, it's not good. So there's this whole invitation here to consider what does this mean? To ask ourselves, like, what's the problem with alone? And he clearly is not speaking here. It's, he's not saying it's not good to, to never have times of solitude, right? Like all the introverts in the room, all of us are like, no, no, we need some solitude. All right. Um, can, can we be by ourselves for just, just a little bit? All right. Um, he's not speaking of that. What he's speaking of is this. God exists in community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you and I are made in the image and likeness of God. And so if God exists in community, then there's something fundamental to the human reality that you and I are created to be in relationship with one another that we cannot escape that, all right? We cannot try and just say, well, you know what? I've got all these other things. I don't need that. Some people need people, but I'm not one of those people. I'm not a people people. That is wrong. Everybody's a people people, right? <laughs> like that's just how it is. And so God is saying, hey, you're made in my image. And in order to be a flourishing human being, to see humans flourish like the rest of creation, God, God is saying, you are created for a community. One of the fascinating things as well is that as sociologists have studied our particular culture, that there's something unique that's happening here in America that actually is not happening in other parts of the world. And it speaks to this issue that fundamentally people are now arriving at a conclusion that we really are living in a loneliness epidemic, this epidemic of being isolated. And some might right away think, oh, well, yeah, that's what the pandemic produced. But this data goes back to 2017. That since 2017, there has been a decline in the life expectancy, not of people around the world, but here in America. Even after you factor in like all of the variables from COVID and all that that brought, no, like this is 2017 and it continued and it got ramped up during the pandemic, but it's continuing and so 2021, 2022, it has continued this pattern that the life expectancy is lowering here in the United States. And as people study these things, this loneliness epidemic, they're realizing, and they're coming to these conclusions that what God said in Genesis 2 is correct. They may not give 
that sort of statement or give lip service to that, but it is actually is what at, is at the core that they're finding that the more isolated, the more lonely people are, it's actually leading to what are called diseases and deaths of despair. And so what's contributing to this lower life expectancy is so wrapped up and tied to our loneliness because we have medical advances that we no longer have infants dying at the same rate as they would have, you know, decades ago or moms giving birth in some of these dangerous moments. Like, not that that never happens, but, but there's more medical advances. There's things that ways that we're treating, excuse me, the ways that we're treating like cancer and heart disease and, and all of that. What we're finding though, and what doctors as well as sociologists as they're studying these matters are saying, yeah, but when you look at what are these diseases of despair, when you talk about alcohol addiction, you talk about suicide rates and opioid addiction and, and other addictions and what leads to uh, you know, failing of the liver. All, all of these things are tied in to a lack of connection what drives people to despair and they end up, literally it's lowering the life expectancy. It speaks to something profound. It speaks to the fact that we're made for one another. It also speaks to, okay, why do we need to pay attention? What's the problem with alone? Well, do you remember God's command, his invitation to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so he's telling them, be fruitful and multiply. And unless Adam has the one that corresponds to him, that is like him, but unlike him, all right, you cannot actually do this, be fruitful and multiply. And so he's saying, hey, this is a problem. And so this does speak specifically to marriage, but I would also put before you that what this calling, this commissioning out of Genesis 1.28 as well is a calling for all Christians, whether you're married or not, to see the kingdom of God advance to see disciples made, to see the kingdom of light push back the kingdom of darkness. And when Jesus sends out his disciples, he never sends them out as isolated individuals, but he sends them out in pairs, two by two. He sends them out to be disciples who make disciples. So there's this reproduction that's at the heart of this calling. And so, yes, that includes man and woman, but it also includes all of us that as in the church were to be disciples who are making disciples. And so, Why do we have to talk about this? Like, what does it mean to be alone? Why is it important to consider it? These are all wrapped up in this. And then we get to verse 19, which is really fascinating because apparently what happened is this. God had heard the song. God was listening. God's, you know, he's the one, he's the great musician. The song is playing. And yet there's sort of scratch in the record. He's like, oh, there's something that's not good. He recognizes it. But apparently at this point, it must be that Adam doesn't get it. All right? Probably he's not the first man in the world to not clearly get something, right? And so he's just like, oh, because he's just looking around and actually thinks, well, I got this relationship with God. I got all the food. I got all this beauty. He's got all these things. And so what does God do? God tells him, hey, it's not good for man to be alone, makes that declaration, and then proceeds to bring every animal in Eden to Adam so that he can name him. Now, this speaks to Adam's involvement, his participation in the subduing of creation. He gets to name it. It means there's some level of authority, all of this is beautiful, but it also is meant to heighten Adam's sense of how truly alone he really was. So it says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. I mean, it's fascinating, right? I mean, 
that'd be kind of a fun job. I mean, they're all coming, right? You're seeing the bear walk over. It's not been called the bear yet, right? But it's coming toward you. And you know, Adam's like, that's a bear, all right? And the bear just receives it, thank you very much, and moves on. Doesn't attack him, doesn't tear him limb from limb, right? Uh, he does that with everything, like hippopotamus, rhinoceros, right? Like he does all of that. Oh, man's best friend, dog, right? Like he does all of those things. And yet it tells us in verse 20, it says this, now the man gave names to all of the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There's that declaration again. The seminary professor and author, Bruce Waltke for years, he taught at Reformed Theological Seminary just down the road here in Oviedo. And he said this in his commentary on Genesis why does God determine that it's not good for Adam to be alone and then give him animals? Should he not have given the woman first? In fact, Adam must realize that it's not good to be alone. Rather than squandering his most precious gift on one who is unappreciative, God waits until Adam is prepared to appreciate the gift of woman. So in this spot then, now we move into, okay, Let's see how God provides. How is God going to rectify this particular situation? And so we're gonna look at verses 20, uh, 21 to 23 here. But as we get back into that, I think we have to take a moment to go back to that declaration that's not good. And that God then says, I will make him, make him a helper that is fit for him. Because every animal had come to Adam and clearly by this point, apparently Adam now is ready to receive what the Lord has for him. He's realized, oh, I've got everything, but there is not one who corresponds to me. I am in need of help. I'm in need of a helper. And I think in our modern Western way that we hear that word, it can bring up a lot of things. And my guess is if you hear that word the same way I initially hear that word, is it brings up things that actually don't align with what the Bible's trying to teach right here. Because I think we tend to think of help or helper as someone who's like your personal assistant, maybe somebody who can't do the things as well as you can, but you'll just give them some other things to do. It's somebody that you can delegate things to, but that's, that's not what this is speaking of. The Hebrew word here, all right, is this word azer, E-Z-E-R, all right? And it's not so much here about delegation as it is about deliverance. It's a word of strength and of power. It speaks of like salvific events, deliverance. It has militaristic associations with it of an army coming in to like swoop in to help those who need to be rescued. And as we'll see in a moment, it's not just all of those things. It's also a way that God identifies himself, that God speaks of himself as an azer. So right away, this should be kind of realigning and, and sort of redefining a bit how we tend to think about help. And I don't know why this came to mind to me this week as I was thinking about it. Like, okay, how do we sometimes misunderstand things? Or we think that, you know, a person exists just to, to do certain things for us. Have you ever seen, show of hands here, uh, one of the greatest sports movies of all time, all right? Some of you are like, Hoosiers, Rudy. No, I'm talking about kicking and screaming with Will Ferrell, all right? The soccer movie, if you've, not, if you've not seen this, let me just set it up for just a moment. And then you really should go home today and watch it, all right? It'll be Sabbath rest, it'll be beautiful, okay? Um, but in this particular film, Will Ferrell starts out um, as just like, he's not very competitive. Um, he's not very driven. He, he's, he's not, um, I don't know, he, he's just, yeah, he's not, he's nothing like his dad is portrayed in, in the film. But eventually, all right, he becomes the soccer coach of his young son's soccer team. 
and somehow like the bug bites him, right? And he's just like, he's now uber competitive and he's just going crazy, wanting to win at all costs, has nothing. He's just set on defeating his old man, right? His old man coaches another soccer team, all right? And so he just becomes uber competitive. And so this dramatic shift. And one of the things that helps him in his coaching is he happens to be next door neighbors with the great Chicago Bear coach, the legendary Chicago Bear coach, Mike Ditka. All right, so some of you may know who this is, or if you're not, you can go look up some vintage 1980 Chicago Bears stuff, all right? Some of you are like, I wasn't born yet. It's still good, go look at it, okay? But Mike Ditka, if you're talking about like, who is driven and competitive and kind of this man's man, like that kind of image, like it's Mike Ditka. And Ditka serves as Will Ferrell's assistant coach. But there's this particular scene where they begin yelling at one another because Will Ferrell is telling these young, this young group of kids, right? I don't care, win at all costs. If you need to injure the other team, right? Like you do that, man, like sweep the leg kind of moments, right? And, and, and Ditka chimes in and it's like, you can't be doing that. He's like, hey, Will Ferrell turns to him and there's kind of this moment where they begin to, to yell at one another, right? And he's like, hey, I'm the head coach, quit butting in. You're here to back me up and to get me juice boxes. And Ditka's like, do you know who you're talking to? And Will Ferrell's like, yeah, I'm talking to the juice box guy, right? And he's like, you're crazy. He's like, you're crazy. And Will Ferrell's like, I'm not crazy. I'm just thirsty, right? And like, they have this whole moment and he, you know, Ditka storms off and, you know, and Will Ferrell's telling the kids, wave to juice box guy. No, literally wave. And he's telling all the parents they have to, it's this whole scene, right? But in that, that's funny for a movie, right? Of this man thinking, well, you're here to help me, right? It's tragic, when we take that and we bring that into relationships, particularly the marriage relationship, to think for a moment that this is communicating, oh, you're my helper, like you're here to get me whatever the juice box equivalent is, we have so missed what this is saying. Let me read to you a few passages, right? Even the song we sang, here I raise my Ebenezer, E-Z-E-A-R, right? Like we hear it throughout the Old Testament, this word, Exodus 18, verse four, and the name of the other, Eliezer, speaking of sons of Moses, for the God of my father, what? This God was my Azer, was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. See how this word is used? We go to Deuteronomy 33, verse seven. This is just a small sampling of the multitude of verses that we could go to. And he said of Judah, hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah and bring him to his people. With your hands contend for him and be an Azer be a help against his adversaries. It's a pleading that the Lord would be an azer, would be a help. This is not a language of one who's there just as sort of like this errand boy. This is what we're talking about, the God of the universe. And God says, I'm gonna create for Adam, for the man, an azer. Psalm 33, 20, our soul waits for the Lord for he is our azer, he is our help and our shield. Do you see how loaded this word is with significance? As we'll look at in a couple of weeks, it doesn't mean that there's not different roles in these things, but, but this is clearly communicating that there's an equality here, both man and woman made in the image and likeness of God. This is why earlier it says, God created them in his image. The plural, it's meant to remind us 
how radically countercultural this would have been in the time where it was only the men that would have been revered this way. And God is saying, no, no, it's the man and the woman. Psalm 121 verses one to two speaks of it twice. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my azer come? My azer, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The one who's created everything is now the one who looks out and says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper that is fit for him, which means corresponds to him, compliments him, and he compliments her. That they are both like one another and unlike one another. The theologian Tim Mackey, who runs the Bible Project, has some fascinating insight on this. I want to read you this quote. This was kind of his summary. If he could take like verse 18 and kind of rework some of the language to make it better fit what is really going on here, he said this, it is not good for the human to be solitary. I will make one who can deliver him from his inability to fulfill the divine commission alone, one who mirrors him. Now we're getting at the heart of what is going on. And so it's with this context and this understanding of Azer, then that we see the provision of the woman. So verse 21 says this, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, he built, he fashioned into a woman and brought her to the man with the same level of intentionality and care that God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into into him, breathed his life into him, we now get this picture of the Lord causing this man to fall into this deep sleep. And whether it's rightly translated, it can mean rib or it can mean side, but there's something that he's taking from the man and he's fashioning with the same level of intentionality and care, this woman. He's forming this azer for him. And one of the beautiful summaries of this, the old Puritan Matthew Henry said it this way, which I think is helpful to keep in mind, that there's something important about even where God chose to take from the man to form this azer, to form this woman. He says this woman, the azer was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. So if at any level you're thinking, man, these things speak of an inequality. No, no, we're misreading it. Are there ways that they complement one another? Yes, God did not bring to Adam a clone of Adam. It's like, hey, Adam one, meet Adam two. Oh, cool, we're gonna dominate the world together. That's not what happened. He brought one that was so like him and also so beautifully unlike him. He brought him what he needed. And correspondingly, he's given to Eve what she needed in Adam. And so this is the provision. And then what we get in verse 23, these are the first recorded words that humanity speaks. And it's not just a basic account. It doesn't read like just a, you know, a to the point email. Rather, it's poetry, it's song. Like Adam cannot contain himself. If you've ever been to a wedding that I've officiated, or if you ever asked me to officiate a wedding, all right, yes, I've got some canned, planned humor that I'm gonna put in, and it's always about this verse, all right? And I've said it probably in every wedding that I've ever officiated, that at any point, because look what happens, then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
I like to turn to the groom and be like, at any point, you are free to disrupt this service. If you wanna just bust into song, maybe you got some poetry that you wrote for your bride, like you've got a verse to back you up like right here, we'll all just wait. Because this language here, when it says this at last, Adam is like, oh my goodness, finally she's here. The animal was cool and all the animals, I got to name them, but man, something was missing. And now when it says this at last, finally she's arrived, oh my goodness, he can't contain himself. The only way to try and express this is through poetry, through song, all right? And he just busts into this song. It's such a beautiful picture. And then he says, she shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. And even that speaks of their likeness, but their difference. She shall be called a woman. The Hebrew word is isha, for she was taken out of ish. Do you see the interplay there? The isha comes from the ish. The woman comes from the man. And it's this way of saying, oh, we have so much in common, but we are also so beautifully different by God's design. Now, as we look at this for just a moment, I think what we get in verse 24 then, as this woman is provided for this man, and as we also just think about relationships in general, I think there are some principles that we see in verse 24, and I think some are more specific to marriage, but I also think there's truths in here that we all need to hear. And so let's look at this for a moment. We'll look at verse 24. Verse 24 states this, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So it's like we get this little commentary interjected. There's the song of Adam, the poetry of Adam, this praise, this rejoicing of Adam. And now we get like these instructions, like there's some principles to abide by. And I think a way to summarize these things are it's a call to leave, to cleave, some old translations will say or how it gets translated, hold fast and to confront. There's a confrontation that does need to happen. But first with, with leave, all right? He says, the man will leave his father and mother. It doesn't mean he doesn't honor and love and cherish his parents or she, her parents, right? I don't ever tell couples when they're, you know, doing their, you know, premarital stuff. And maybe they're like, oh, we've got plans for the unity candle. There's the one that represents his family and her family. And we'll take them, we'll light them in the middle. And then we will blow those candles out. We'll smash them to the ground. We'll stomp on them, right? It's just us, right? Like that's, I don't advise that. But there is this call, like you're starting, you're leaving. It's like, you have a new allegiance. You're starting a new household. You're creating a new family. You got to figure out what your rhythms are, Right? And so you're leaving your father and mother. There is this call to like the one that is the one, like this is the one that you're my person. You're my go-to. I, I process things with you. We pray together. It doesn't mean you don't process or pray ever with anybody else, but where's the primacy? If you find yourself like, hey, your husband or your wife is finding out things second and third hand, that's not how it's designed to be. There's this intimacy. Also, I think can mean this leaving. Sometimes it's like, hey, maybe it just means now you gotta start leaving the office. You gotta leave 80 hour work weeks behind. Maybe you gotta leave habits and hobbies and things that were once part of your life that is single. And now you actually need to engage with this person who God has given to you. This is all what it looks like to leave. But also then there is this call as we see to cleave, to love the one, to hold fast to the one that is before you. 
It's this beautiful picture of the first marriage, right? Like literally Eve is presented to Adam as the way a father walks a, a bride down the aisle. And she, he's presented, or sorry, Adam is presented Eve. It's like, love the one before you. There, there's no account in here where Adam's like, oh, but I thought she'd be a little different. Could you make her this, right? Like he's just, wow, love the one that is before you. Because at the end of the day, you don't just want a beautiful wedding day. You want a beautiful marriage and life together. And the calling, the language here of hold fast, the old word cleave is covenantal language. We live in very consumeristic contractual sort of times. And we think about swapping out relationships for what, like we might swap out because there's the new iPhone that's out, right? Like, oh, we'll just take this. No, this is holy, sacred language. There is a bond that is here. And there is this calling to hold fast to that person. Because when the hard times come, when the difficulties come, and they will, you need that covenant to fall back on. When you have the, those moments where you're like, this is way different than I thought. And she's like, yeah, it is way different than I thought. Like you need that covenant, hold fast. I wanna share a story by letting you hear this audio clip. It's a, of a man, this goes back, I think it was recorded in 1990. And it's about his vows and what those look like many, many years later. This man was at the peak of his career. Um, his name is Robertson McCulkin, and he, at the time, was the president of Columbia Bible College um, in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and he was serving as the president of this college, and his wife was becoming ill. And his wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and they tried for a time to see, like, hey, how could he continue to do his job while having people come in to care for her? But it just, it, it just wasn't going well. And he describes this story. I want you to hear his words and hear in his voice. Friends, this is a picture of what hold fast looks like. So listen in on this. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there could be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, Till death do us part, and I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. So a picture, right, of a man who's like, hey, so I need to resign. Okay. It was a great job. Thankful for it. But it's not the priority. And so this hold fast to cleave. But lastly, I think there's something that marriage does, but I would also say relationships in general confront us. 
that there's something in a marriage relationship at one level that reveals, but it doesn't just reveal about your spouse. I mean, there's things that get revealed about your spouse that you see, but what it's meant to do is actually reveal something about you, reveal something about me when it says, the two will become one flesh. And certainly that does speak of the sexual union like that, that is included in that. But when you think about that idea of two becoming one flesh, that like you think some of the same thoughts, you're becoming one, the things that you begin to value together, like you came in as two people and that work towards one is beautiful, but it's hard. And there's gonna be things that you differ on and things that that, that person's gonna mold and shape you. That person's also gonna reveal to you, like, you know, I got married and I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm a relatively easygoing. I'm not super prideful or selfish. <laughs> right, lies, um, right? You get married and you're like, oh, I thought I'd work through everything in my story. Nope, not true, right? Like, what about all these things that you've never really processed emotionally? Like, there's all of these things and marriage begins to reveal, but I would also put before you, so there's this confrontation, but, but it's also in any relationship. Maybe you're not married. I think there's a call then, do you have friends in your life that are, you're committed to them and they're committed to you and that in loving kindness, like they will speak the truth in love. Because we have to admit whether married or single, here's the reality, we're all weird, man. Like we all have weird things that we do. And we're like, oh, I don't, I don't have any blind spots, whatever, right? Like it's the reality. And we need friends that will point those things out to us. And be like, hey, maybe you considered this or how about thinking about it from this way? Oh, I never thought about it like that. Like we need to be confronted. You don't need a clone. The world does not need more of me, but we do need one that would compliment us that would lovingly confront us, right? These are the relationships we need. And so as we close verse 25, we get then this picture, picture of purity, this ideal picture, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Isn't that the place that we wanna be? But it's terrifying, isn't it? Like what, what if people really saw me? What if people really knew me? right? To be seen and known and then actually like received in love, to have that level of confidence, to be so anchored, to, to, to feel so like steady in that. Like that's, man, that's a gift. And that's what they had for a short, short time as we will see as we get into Genesis 3 next week. But there it is at the conclusion of chapter two, they were both naked, complete vulnerability, intimacy, and there's no shame. There's no hiding. There's no covering up. And we ask the question that like, how do we get back? Cause that's, that's not where we're at. We're people that we are prone, as we sang earlier, we're prone to wander. And then we're prone to hide and we're prone to try and cover up. How do we get back? And we won't get back to that spot. We won't experience the intimacy and the vulnerability in a marriage or in any relationship, unless we understand that there's a true spouse that we've been waiting for that there is a true husband that we all need. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 32 says this, "'Behold, the days are coming,' declares the Lord, "'when I will make a new covenant "'with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, "'not like the covenant that I made with their fathers "'on the day when I took them by the hand "'to bring them out of the land of Egypt, "'my covenant that they broke, "'though I was their husband,' declares the Lord." Do you see how the Lord speaks of himself in relation to his people? That all throughout the scripture, there is this theme 
there is this picture that God is our perfect husband and we as his people, now we as the church are the bride. And yet the reality is we are not pure. We have shame. We've brought shame upon ourselves. We are a spiritually unfaithful, adulterous people that keep running after other lovers. And God keeps pursuing us as a good husband saying, I will come for you. I will redeem you. I will bring you back. And perhaps one of the most blunt assessments, but I think one of the most helpful assessments of our relationship with God, it was by Tim Keller when he said, we are the spouses from hell and God is in the longest lived worst marriage in the history of the worlds. <laughs> Amen, I get, right? Like I, it's so true. Now you can understand the whole history of the Bible. When you realize, oh, this is us. And we keep running after other things. How do we get back? Well, the apostle Paul quotes Genesis 2, 24 and Ephesians 5. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, right? He'll leave and he'll cleave, he'll hold fast to his wife, covenantal commitment, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this in verse 32, this mystery, friends, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so yes, that marriage, but that marriage is a picture that's supposed to point to the deeper reality of the pursuit of God as the husband, of Jesus as the good husband who pursues, not a bride who's walking in, right? Completely pure and radiant, but a, a wife that has been unfaithful. That's us, that's our condition. And yet he continues to love us. He continues to pursue us. This is why just a couple of verses before that, in calling husbands, he says this. So husbands pay attention, but also see the bigger picture because this is what's true for all of us, whether you're married or not. It says this, husbands love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Well, what did he do for the church? He died for the church. He bled out for the church. He was put on a cross for the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, that's the story you've been invited into. This is what Genesis 2 speaks of and says, you're part of a story of God pursuing you, that God, that Jesus is the husband we all need. And we as the church are his people. And yes, we've been unfaithful, but there's an invitation to repent of our sins and to cleave to him. That's where we need to be. He is the covenant making, covenant keeping God. Praise God for that. And he keeps pursuing us. And to the extent that we rest in that, whether we're married, single, whatever it is, that's what's gonna allow relationships to flourish when we know, oh, he's got us. So let me pray for us as we continue in our worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that are both challenging and comforting. We ask God that your spirit would continue to be at work, bringing conviction where it's needed, bringing comfort where it's needed. God, you know the particulars of Every single person here, God, their story, everything that we carry in. And thank you that you keep pursuing us. Thank you that in the gospel, there is no shame. We thank you that you allow us to be vulnerable and honest, that you see us, that you know us. What a gift that is. And because of that gift, we can now be seen and known by others. So Lord, make us into a community that sees and knows one another and points the deeper reality 
of who Jesus is. God, I pray for the marriages represented here, God, that they would be strengthened, that they would hold fast, not in their strength, but that they would know that they are being held fast by Jesus. You are our good and perfect husband and leader or savior. And God, we thank you that you are our azer. You are our help. You are the one that battles for us. So God, would you work, continue to work in and through us for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.